I'm really happy to be with you here. It still feels like home because of the friends and people that I meet when I'm here. Uh, it's nice to be, nice to be back. Uh, Julie sends her warm greetings to all of you. Uh, you may recall that she's a pastor now at River East Church, a fellow MB congregation for now, uh, and she works in the areas of art, worship arts and children's ministry. Uh, I'm also a member of that church. Uh, some of you will also remember our three daughters. Uh, Cecily, the oldest, is now married to Justin Braun Jansen, and uh, she is a psychiatric nurse at the Crisis Response Center at the Health Sciences Center. Our Hannah is in a Master of Social Work degree, uh, studying in Glasgow, Scotland, and Greta is in the middle of uh, preparing and studying to be a midwife. And I'm still teaching at Canadian Mennonite University. May the peace of Christ be with you. Thank you. As I understand my assignment, I'm participating in a series that you began last week in which you're considering Christian witness in a polarized world, which is, of course, a timely topic. The main resource Carl passed on to me is Nelson Crable's recently published book titled Stuck Together, The Hope of Christian Witness in a Polarized World. Carl's assignment to me, and I'll quote it, we would be addressing chapter two of Crable's book, that chapter focuses on how the Old Testament scriptures and Jewish tradition handled polarization, from the diversity of texts to rabbinic views such as Hillel, in which tensions within the text were left unresolved. Crable's chapter title, Boundaries Are Necessary But Can Polarize, kind of gives us the thesis of his, of his chapter. He draws on wide swaths of Old Testament scriptures and shows that the books of Ezra and Nehemiah have a specific teaching, an attempt in their day to legislate what he calls a kind of theological uniformity in the Israelite nation. And the, the reason, uh, the present reason for, the, uh, for that uniformity is to address temptations of idolatry uh, that might come if these boundaries are too porous. On the other hand, argues Crable, we read the book of Jonah, for example, in which the work of that prophet challenges any sense of exclusive nationalism. It invites in the Ninevites. And in a similar vein, he points out the book of Ruth provides a narrative account of a so-called foreigner, Ruth, uh, who is not an Israelite, but, but a Moabite. And not only does she marry a Jewish man, but she becomes part of the lineage of King David. So readers of the Old Testament might be tempted to see both an inclusive approach to use current lingo, toward foreigners being modeled and taught, and a more exclusive approach being modeled and taught as well. What to do? Crable goes on to show, however, briefly, that Jewish tradition has commented on these and other scriptures, collecting rabbinical teachings into a source called the Mishnah. And then the Mishnah, those teachings and those reflections, have become uh, a huge collection called the Talmud, uh, which runs to something like 250, sorry, 2.5 million words, says Crable. And what's so notable for him in the context of the Talmud is that these collections of rabbinical teachings include many disagreements, often strong ones, and moreover, many of them are left unresolved. So Crable asks, how is it possible for the Jewish nation to sustain this evident diversity? His conclusion is that the diversity can be sustained because of an underlying shared conviction, 
actually a number of convictions, but the primary one is that important dimension of the faith, the belief that Yahweh is the true God. I find this helpful, actually, as a starting point in thinking about reading the Bible together. And I want to press uh, the trajectory of Crable's argument a little further, especially regarding this notion that there might be shared conditions underlying our diversity that might allow us to navigate that diversity without mutual disdain and rejection, without papering over real and important differences as well. Let's begin with a general acknowledgement, uh, and that is that it's difficult to talk about God and the Bible and our shared faith. Um, the American, the scholar Christer Stendhal uh, wrote a generation ago, to speak about God is in fact completely arrogant. It's to think what cannot be thought. To think is to grasp and to hold in one's mind to possess. But sin of sins and flaw of flaws is to think that we can possess God. And so talking about these matters which are so close to our hearts and which give shape to our lives carries with it at the same time a real and present temptation. And the temptation is that of a certain kind of a grasping quality, right? Wanting to lock down matters of faith and practice when in fact such grasping, holding, and possessing impulse of our faith in talk about our faith is a distorting for force, I want to argue. I also want to be clear that I'm not interested in emptying our theological work of constructive content. I'm not calling for us to abandon um, uh, tradition even, which in Anabaptism often takes the form of confessions of faith. And I'm surely not calling, extending a call to embrace relativism or some version of secular liberalism. Whether I want to think with you about how we might move forward even in diversity without succumbing to some sort of a truncated fundamentalist lust for power, or maybe a dissipation of faith into some amorphous relativism or some version of hyperpluralism. Rather, I want to put forward for your consideration four dimensions that I hope are helpful in taking a stance that takes God seriously, takes the Bible seriously, and takes each other seriously, even while tensions and diversities confront us. I'm going to talk about four dimensions. Reverence, which celebrates the wonder of God in our faith. Repentance, which realizes the brokenness of our condition. I want to argue for a reticence which pursues what the Christian tradition has called learned ignorance, and then restlessness which recognizes the nature, the mobile nature of our faith. Reverence, repentance, reticence, restlessness. I spent way more time on that outline than the rest of my sermon. So let's call these four dimensions of sticking together. Reverence, the wonder of God in our faith. My point is simple. We ought to read the Bible with reverence and wonder, which are dimensions of our faith which, for which complete rational certitude is, in fact, not strictly required. Reverence does not require complete certainty to be operative. 
But if there is uncertainty, it is uncertainty of a, of a certain kind, if I may say so. It's not so much a relativist, pluralist, or a pursuit of doubt as if those things are in themselves a fully Christian stance or, or some kind of virtue. But what is required by our pursuit of faith and understanding of Christian theology is a certain kind of understanding that is reverent in nature. And here I want to draw on the work of Marilyn Robinson, an essayist, novelist, whom I admire greatly. She says, there is something about certainty that makes Christianity unchristian. It's possible to cultivate uncertainty as a form of reverence, she says, which in turn is connected inextricably to the practice of humility. The only certainty Robinson allows herself as a devout Christian is the confidence that she remains in error in significant ways that are yet unknown to her. Rejecting the notion that such a recognition generates a paralyzing effect uh, or the assertion of faith which exists without certainty somehow creates a stultifying impact on the life and work of the Christian believer, Robinson argues instead that faith in God is a liberation of thought because thought is an ongoing instruction in things that pertain to God, resulting in what is perhaps counterintuitive, the reality of a religious belief that leads to intellectual openness. Her notion of intellectual openness is not, I hasten to add, some sort of amorphous version of all opinions are equally valid. Rather, she is seeking a robust investigation and expression of the things that we encounter in this world, which she believes, as do I, as do you, that this is God's world. The embrace of truth, history, humility, and even uncertainty as reverence moves Robinson to assert this. By my lights, an appropriate reverence for God, for this shining garment of reality in which God is revealed and concealed, for the unique and deeply sacred mystery of his dealings with any person, an appropriate reverence for these things is not consistent with the idea that we can judge other souls it has pleased God to make partakers of this great mystery, the great sacrament of being itself. Thus, the pursuit of God, of truth, of relationship, and so much more, is given its shape not by certainty, neither by uncertainty, but by reverence. For the Christian, in other words, I'm asking for a switching of categories. For the Christian, that reverence is not pursued for its own sake or directed to just any object. But it is directed at God, who is not just one object among other objects. To assert that the reverence of Christian theology ought to be directed to God may appear at first glance to be to just state the perfectly obvious. But it remains a struggle, I think, for us to retain reverence directed to God as the shaping power of our work. The first word in theology, in faith, as Karl Barth liked to say, the first word is God. It is difficult to, to sustain that in the face of our temptation to have our theology do something other than start with God. In Mennonite circles, if I may say so, it's tempting for us, I think one of our primary temptations is to do our theology in a way that immediately sets it to work in a certain kind of a way. That is, in an Anabaptist Mennonite key, if you will, it's, it's tempting to forget or omit reverence in our haste to pursue ethics or some social action. We've got to get busy doing stuff. The embrace and practice of reverence 
the object of which is God, opens up possibilities of ethical practices that would be unavailable to our imagination on any other grounds. Not to put a too fine a point on all of this, this dimension of sticking together, reverence, suggests that we can resist polarization through the Christian practice of worship as an expression of that reverence. The second dimension that I want to talk about is repentance, a reference to the brokenness of our world, of ourselves, and of our Christian thinking. Reading the Bible together requires, I want to say, not only reverence but repentance, because we always need to be corrected, perpetually. Put another way, our Christian faith has to articulate and confront not only falsehoods external to it, we're good at that, but it's internal temptations and falsehoods. This kind of self-awareness and attentiveness to the inner workings of faith in church isn't just navel-gazing or narcissism, but it's an approach that's penitent, a readiness for our particular versions of things that we hold today to be actually called into question. Specific conclusions and sometimes even the way we do things more generally. Now, it's interesting, such impetus for self-study and correction can come not only from inside of our faith, inside of our church, but it can also come from outside the church because the church, let's face it, is sometimes blind to its own shortcomings. And we need the prophetic word from people who are in fact not Christian. Rather than giving rational certainty as a way to approach a fully orbed understanding of God, perhaps the mourning of repentance may be thought to constitute a medium by which God makes himself present to us. It's impossible to suggest what we might need to repent of at any given time, since the church falls prey to all kinds of temptations uh, in our various situations. But the Mennonite tradition, going all the way back to Menno Simons, has a long-standing emphasis on repentance as being one of the basic stances or the basic posture uh, which we must embrace. You might call it a sustained, penitent existence, a pattern displayed in worshiping together in a way that transforms into daily practice. Reverence, repentance, third dimension. Here I want to talk about reticence, the educated ignorance of theology. Here I want to promote ignorance, but not just any kind not just garden variety ignorance, the kind that might produce laziness or might come as a result of laziness. What I, th what I want to say instead is that reticence, what I'm, my reference here is to, is, is for us to embrace a willingness to say less than we're tempted to say, to resist saying more than should be said, to, to, to not lose authenticity by being triumphalist, this is not to say that we shouldn't share our faith. That's not, not, not it at all. But it is to assert that the faith that we share can't be considered a possession or a commodity that can be fully grasped or owned. So, for example, if we attempt in a faulty way um, to assert coherence about a certain issue, uh, what, what we find is that this often serves to create other crises of incoherence. So it's crucial to recognize that the closer we are drawn to God, the more that we begin to gain some understanding of the holy mystery of God, 
the more that we are and what we say and what we do refracts the character of God's word, the more conscious we become of the depths of our unknowing. God becomes more unknown, not less, the more we understand him. This is why the Christian tradition speaks of educated ignorance. I'm drawing here on Nicholas Lash, a British theologian. To embrace educated ignorance, learned ignorance, is to engage in the rigorous pursuit of understanding, but to do so in a spirit or stance of humility that recognizes the possibility of deception, and especially self-deception, deception by those who teach us and the misleading of those whom we teach. This is difficult. You work as hard as you can to come to a conclusion that you really don't know much. Now, to say, I don't know much, is different coming from the mouth of somebody who has worked as hard as they can versus somebody who hasn't done a, a thing, right? Uh, those, are, those are substantively different kinds of uh, conclusions. To, to talk about our faith with each other, therefore, in some senses, kind of defies us. And it carries with it the danger of disagreement and conflict. But we ought not to let these factors deter us from that faithful pursuit. That is, we should talk about our faith, even as we know the dangers that talking about our faith carries with it. After all, talk about our faith is not just an exercise of some technique, as it sometimes appears. It's not some vaguely spiritual response to free-floating, ill-defined, omnivorous human desire. Rather, the nature of the task calls for the stance of humility, and humility, I want to say, engenders reticence. Hold back a bit. My beloved uh, colleague, Harry Hubner, puts it this way. Although Christians may see Jesus, as the writer of Hebrews reminds us, that the task of knowing how to, the task of knowing how to embody Jesus in our settings requires, listen to his uh, description of the task, an ongoing corrective challenge of simplification and complexification, construction and subversion. Perhaps most important is learning the art of knowing when to pick up which challenge, which requires insight and humility. And here I want to uh, turn explicitly to the scriptures, especially the ones uh, that one read patiently this morning by these three readers. Uh, we don't need to be afraid of being reticent in speaking too much. Uh, the scripture offers us encouragement by showing us that human speech isn't the only way that, that, that the created world talks about God. The passage in Isaiah 55 this is also uh, echoed in Psalm 84, and passages like it highlight the fact that the God of whom we speak, haltingly, humbly, is our sun and shield. God bestows on us favor, honor, does not withhold good things from those who walk uprightly. God invites us to abundant life, cheerfully sends rain, and sets in motion the process wherein which we are fed with all manner of good things. We, the church, are recipients of the gifts of God. We participate in something that's already going on on a scale that is truly global, seeing as how it has been given to the whole earth. That earth, in turn, responds in an attempt to articulate praise to the one from whom every good and perfect gift proceeds. Mountains, 
Trees, hills burst into song, clap their hands. And when we speak, we join with others in participating in the joyful receiving of God's gifts as a giving over of ourselves to the hope that the world with which we work and which we uh, offer together to all creation will not return empty. But all of this is ultimately not in our hands and in our control. So a good measure of reticence ought to mark our speech and interactions with each other. Sometimes we should just be quiet and let the trees do their bit. So the fourth dimension is restlessness, which, from which I draw the title of this sermon, The Restlessness of Faith. The fourth dimension of sticking together uh, refers to the mobility of our faith and of theology. To understand our pursuit of faith as something other than a search for rational certainty or unending stability is an important dimension of our pursuit. We need to watch our language and work with words in the light of faith. And these are understandings which resist the notion that the task of talking about our faith requires a definitive beginning and an identifiable conclusion. Rather, theology, talk of faith, is constantly on the move. The nature of faith itself is mobile, or perhaps better put, dynamic. The work of reading the Bible together includes and calls for what I'm calling an essential restlessness, which we should embrace if we are to resist the grasping and controlling impulses along with this temptation to idolatry that perpetually accompanies the work of the church. That is a resistance to, a refusal to force a closing off of possibilities is intrinsic to the nature of faith itself. Rowan Williams, who used to be the Archbishop of Canterbury, he argues that a push for complete coherence produces no such thing. This is not to say that theology or religious talk of all kinds is satisfied only with provisional statements in perpetuity, but an embrace of restlessness, of mobility, carries with it the temptation to assert the the necessity of rejection of anything that resembles or approaches authoritative creedal or confessional statements. I know that there's a a tension here, uh, and sometimes it produces anxiety. But what I'm arguing is not that restlessness and mobility are synonymous with agnosticism or cynicism regarding truth, or worse still, uh, some kind of nihilism. Rather, it becomes possible to avoid the dangers of certainty and the frustration of relativism while pursuing real meaning, but without having to lock it down in a way that is a possession. Gary Kuchar, uh, a very sensitive, um, non-believing English scholar, uh, says this. Um, We have... He's he's trying to describe the Christian faith. Uh, The Christian faith is a mystery that is intelligible, but not ultimately comprehensible. It is interpretable, but not, as it were, containable. But it allows for the possibility of real spiritual meaning without excessive, exaggerated certitude. The restlessness, as I'm employing the term here, resists an idolatrous idolatrous grasping for control and is central to struggling against sinful self-delusion. 
rather than control or the relentless pursuit of certitude and stability. Reading the Bible together calls for a turn to God, a turn enabled in part by a reverence that is due to God. And so I return to Crable's counsel that the church ought to stick together because of some underlying shared convictions, namely the belief in one true God made known to us in Jesus Christ to whom the Spirit bears witness. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it very nicely. Only people who carry a certain restlessness around with them can wait. And people who look up reverently to the one who is great in the world. Amen.